This is Kevin Conroy, the voice of Batman. You're listening to the Mostly Harmless Podcast. At least you better be. Welcome to the Most of the Homeless Podcast. I'm your host, Damn it, Damien. All right, buddies, welcome back to the show. Sorry we took a couple weeks off there. Uh, we had some stuff scheduled uh, for the last couple weeks, but unfortunately, with the nature of the show, when you're interviewing touring musicians, you might have something scheduled. Stuff sometimes falls through. It sucks. It happens. It's okay. We're going to live with it. We're going to deal with it. I was supposed to go to the Death of False Hope uh, Records Festival this weekend in Durham, North Carolina. That fell through, but for a very good reason, because uh, through my work, I'm going to Thailand in July uh, on a whole Planet Foundation volunteer trip. And uh, we're going to spend two weeks in July uh, working with elephants, uh, volunteering in impoverished uh, neighborhoods, um, villages and things of that nature. So I canceled this trip to Death of False Hope Records uh, in Durham, North Carolina, one of the best music festivals I've ever been to, um, to stay at home. And then I forgot to take the vacation time off. So for five days, I did nothing. The only thing I did is I took my uh, Death Wish coffee from our sponsors at Death Wish Coffee and made some uh, cold brew coffee, a.k.a. toddies, and holy crap, dude. I didn't think this coffee could get any more caffeinated than an RA was, but holy shit. Cold brood is all the way to go. That's the new hotness. That's the new jam, buddies. Uh, but anyway, so today I'm hopped up on coffee. I got to go to work here in a few minutes. First day back after five days. And I'm like, man, I, I really just want to put something up on the internet. So I uh, went digging around through the archives and found this interview that I did for New Noise Magazine a few months back that I'm really, really happy with and I really wanted to share with you guys. And that interview is with uh, filmmaker Adam Green. Now, um, Adam Green, of course, is the filmmaker behind the Hatchet films as well as the horror film Frozen, not to be confused with the Disney film. Frozen is a awesome, awesome, awesome film about these three kids who get stuck after hours on a ski lift and then have to fight for their survival. Um, it's it's fucking awesome. Can't can't recommend that highly enough. Um, Adam is also the star and creator of the Holliston TV show over on Fearnet. Uh, he does that show along with his best friend and fellow film director Joe Lynch. Those two also host one of my favorite podcasts ever, um, The Movie Crypt. It's called The Movie Crypt Podcast. Uh, Entertainment Weekly just named it one of the top 20 podcasts of uh, 2014. Highly, 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 highly recommend it. I'm completely addicted. Uh, Adam and Joe, since they're horror movie directors, they bring on their a lot of their horror movie fans, uh, friends and fans and whatnot. Um, like, for example, the first episode I listened to was with James Gunn, who uh, directed Guardians of the Galaxy. He also directed some awesome movies like Super and Slither. But did you know that guy started out uh, doing DIY stuff and making trauma films? And it's a good way to see that you can start out anywhere and still make one of the number one movies of all time. Um, they also talk with Lloyd Kaufman of Tromo Films. Uh, they have Chris Columbus 
Chris Columbus, the guy who, you know, directed the first two Harry Potter movies, but also wrote Gremlins back in the day. Um, and, and then not, not to mention they have like Don Coscarelli from the Phantasm movies. And even they talk with Michael Bean, who was, uh, you know, in the first Terminator movie as well as Aliens. And, uh, you know, it's just like a love affair to film and to DIY and doing it yourself. And a lot of the show, a lot of the movie crypt has had a huge influence on most of the harmless in that I've, I've uh, slowly shifted away from talking as much about origin stories and talking more about the importance of getting up off your fucking couch and making stuff happen. And that's a lot of what the movie crypt is. And uh, one of the things they, they tell people is people are like, well, what advice do you give me for being a film director? And uh, they, they always have the same advice. They go, don't do it. Um, find something else to do. You'll waste your way, your life. And if those people are still unfazed and still decide that like, Hey man, I, this is my life. This is what I want to do. I want to make movies. Then they're, they're in, they're good. They're the ones that are going to make it in life. And, and a lot of their show is about not asking for permission. All right. In today's interview, we talked to Adam Green about his newest film, Digging Up the Marrow. As this, uh, as we did this interview, it was about to come out on video on demand. I'd already watched it. I loved it. It is unlike any other horror movie I've ever seen. Nothing really comes close. Um, it'll get a lot of comparisons to Blair Witch Project, but it's wholly different than that and, and really amazing. Uh, now it is out anywhere and everywhere on Blu-ray and DVD, but I highly recommend you visit Aerioscope.com. It is Adam's film company. Uh, you buy it directly from DVD from him, and all proceeds go back to him and helping him uh, continue to make awesome, high-quality, independent horror films uh, for those film geeks like me who really dig this stuff. And he's doing different stuff, not that cookie-cutter, you know, saw um, paranormal activity bullshit. He's coming up with wholly original ideas and making them happen. Um, and yeah, and that's what we talk about today. And l let me tell you, digging up the marrow, again, n nothing, I've never seen anything quite like it. Um, it's part documentary. It stars Adam Green as himself. It stars a whole host of his uh, Holliston cast and crew. And then you've got this, the mysterious William Decker, played by Ray Weiss, who many of you are going to recognize from Twin Peaks. I remember him as Robin Shabatsky's father from How I Met Your Mother, but I just binged watched that not too long ago. And it's this guy takes Adam Green on this wild roller coaster ride. They go deep, dark into the woods and find this mysterious um, place full of monsters. Or maybe they don't. I don't know. You'll just have to watch and find out. Um, it takes these weird twists and turns that we talk about here in the interview, but I never knew what to expect from the movie. I never knew what was going to happen next. And really, like, I, most horror movies bore the shit out of me because they're very formulaic, and this one was far from formulaic. So please, Digging Up the Marrow, please check that out now. Uh, you can find it on aerioscope.com, Amazon. Uh, you can rent it through Netflix with the disc, but... uh. Buy it from aeroscope.com. Throw some shekels back Adam Green's way. Um, so without any further rambling, oh, let's ramble a little bit longer. Thanks to my sponsors at Death Witch Coffee for all the fine beverages. And uh, thanks to my buddies at Racial Beerworks, racialbeerworks.com, uh, 2920 Larimer Street here in the Denver Rhino District. Uh, thank you guys for getting me drunk and sponsoring our live Most of the Harmless podcast events. We'll have some more information on the next one coming up here in the next couple days. Visit mostlyharmlesspodcast.com for more information. Sign up for the mailing list as well as uh, you can, uh, you know, like us on Facebook, subscribe on iTunes, follow us on Stitcher, all those good things. So without any further ado, we're not going to do a, do any music today uh, since this is a film 
about a filmmaker. Uh, it's, I just couldn't figure out a song to open this episode up with. So uh, let's go ahead and get straight into my phone interview with Adam Green about Digging Up the Marrow and his The Movie Crypt podcast. All right, buddies, let's take a listen. All right, Adam, I've got Damien here from New Noise Magazine. All right, what's up, Damien? Not too much, man. How are you doing today? Doing good. Cool, cool, cool. Hopefully you haven't done too many interviews today. Hopefully you're not too worn out. <laughs> um, I've done a bunch, but they've, they've been great. Like, nice. All the questions are different, which is awesome. Yeah. Um, so I, I, uh, I'm a gigantic fan of the podcast. I, uh, I hate to say I just discovered it thanks to Entertainment Weekly, but um, I think I would have discovered it because I'm a huge James Gunn fan even before Guardians, and his episode was great. So um, it's it's an honor talking to you, and it's kind of weird that I've listened to so many hours of you talking that now you're talking to me. So it's it'll be it'll be interesting. Um, but it's but funny, I have to admit I'm going to record the podcast. So. Yeah, I know. Oh. If you want to mention Damien, that'd be awesome. If not, it's no big deal. I'll, uh, uh, but no, but so, uh, so since you do interviews yourself now, um, how do you get through the monotony of doing interviews, you know, being the subject of interviews and probably I'm going to assume answering a lot of the same questions over and over again. Now that you kind of, you've kind of mastered the art form yourself of asking questions. How do, how do you answer questions all day now? Well, I mean, in comparison to the podcast, we try to look at the podcast more like recorded conversations yeah. than interviews. And like 99% of the guests are friends of ours that we know really well anyway. So that usually works out well. But um, as far as like these press days and stuff go, um, normally it's like you're so lucky that somebody wants to take the time to actually talk about something you did and like post it somewhere that it, it never gets monotonous. I mean, it's, nice. it's amazing and it's always, cool. it never gets boring. It never feels like you're answering the same questions um, because it's always different audiences that are hearing it. I do feel that though, when there's other people in the room or like for the publicist that's on the line that has to listen <laughs> to me all day long. Cause they look really <laughs> scared. <laughs> but, um, but no, that's all right. Um, and, and you just reminded me, I, I, probably would have forgotten about this completely. I, we have a mutual friend in common in Bria Grant. Um, oh, yeah. He, yeah, I, I knew he, I knew Bria back when she was I, – I listened to her episode the other day, and she talked about being in a punk rock band. That's how I know her was through her punk rock band out of uh, uh, East Texas way back in, like, 98 and 99. And uh, so it was great. Oh, listening. my God. Yeah. I have, I have photos if you want to see them. I You know, it's so funny because I've known her for so many – years and until she said that on the podcast i had no idea and yeah. of course she was a punch drummer like i should have just guessed that but yeah <laughs> she's one of the coolest people i've met in la she's just awesome yeah i i haven't I, I we've tweeted back and forth but i haven't talked to her in probably 13 years but she still remembers me and that's that's just mind-blowing but uh but yeah it was great listening to that episode but um so New Noise, New Noise is kind of like a punk rock metal magazine. Um, you find it free in record stores and whatnot. And we're going to slowly try to cover more movies that fit that bill. And I think uh, the stuff you do definitely fits in that bill, especially the Holliston stuff. Um, so today, I, today I want to talk a little bit about like um, your roots, selling you and selling the movie at the same time, it's kind of like a two twofer, um, if that works for you. So, sure, cool. Um, so, I. Uh, 
getting so through the podcast, I've learned that you love American Werewolf in London, and uh, you know a lot of people. It it is London, right? Or I get the two confused sometimes. Yeah. Okay, yeah, I drink. I, I get the two. The other confused. one doesn't. One doesn't count. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, I saw that one in on a date in high school. That was terrible. Anyway, um, I'm so sorry. Yeah. So uh, a, a lot of your your work is very DIY, do it yourself, and a lot of the punk rock world is very DIY, do it yourself. Um, what I want to ask is how how did watching American Werewolf lead you? I know how it led you to wanting to be a filmmaker, but at what point did you realize that you could just go out and fucking do it on your own? Um, you know, I think American Werewolf really shaped the the tone um, of the type of filmmaker I wanted to be because I always loved horror, but I wasn't so much into the the really malicious or um, mean-spirited stuff. And I think Landis just had this tone about him where even though the movie was scary and even though it was graphic and gory, it was still entertaining. And so no matter what genre I've been working in, whether it's like a survival thriller like Frozen or a psychodrama like Spiral or a splatter movie like Catchit, I try to always remember to be entertaining first because nobody's buying a ticket or a DVD to be punished. And in like the 2000s, when I really got my start, it felt like that's what was happening in the genre. Like how many movies that I went to where I just had to watch like a woman get raped or like somebody be tortured and beg for their life. And it was like, you know, I, I get it and there's room for everything, but this is not why I got into this. And so when I made Hatchet, that was really just sort of my answer to what was happening. And thankfully it just sort of caught this kind of like beat worldwide with people who felt the same way and who missed the movies of the eighties and having the unstoppable killer and practical makeup effects and fun. So that was sort of how I first landed an audience. And then I think my love of metal, especially Twisted Sister, because yeah. for people who don't know, a lot of people think Twisted Sister just came out with, we're not going to take it and we're superstars. But, I mean, that band was around for a solid, like, 12 years before that. And it took them 10 years just to even get a, a record deal. But it, they just kept doing it and doing it. And that's the thing with this industry. It's like everybody knows how competitive it is, and they know how that the odds are so stacked against you. But you have to do it yourself. No, There's no such thing as applying for a job as director or working your way up the ladder to being a, an artist. You, you just have to do it and you just sort of hope that the right people are going to see it and talk about it and it's going to spread. So that's really where I developed everything. I think it was, it was music and, and even this movie that's coming out now, Digging Up the Marrow, um, Dave Brocky from Guar, who was one of my closest friends, you know, he was one of the first people I told about it, and I explained how weird it was, and that it was kind of a documentary, but not, but it wasn't found footage, and I don't really know what you would call it, and I was kind of getting resistance from my own reps, because they were like, well, if you can't put it in a box, then maybe don't do this, because Hollywood doesn't like new. They always say they do. They're like, oh, we're looking for fresh young voices and we're looking for the next thing they're, they're not they want the safest thing possible that's why 
if you look at what comes out wide theatrically, it's usually based on a toy or a comic book or it's a remake because it's safe. And so nobody really got this. And Dave was the one who said, well, that's exactly why you have to do it. Right. And you, know, you look at Guar and what they did. I mean, 30 years that band has been going now. And it's amazing. And they just did it their way. And and then you continue to do it your way. What I like about uh, your work is it jumps. You don't do, you know, you have a sitcom s TV show. Um, you have, uh, you know, Frozen, which is I don't even know what to call that, a, a thriller, and then Hatchet. You you jump around. You do whatever the hell you want, and that's what I like about your work is that you you don't confine yourself to that box. But I've been very fortunate in the fact that I have a fan base that is just amazing i mean the my real fans will drive four or five hours to see one of my movies in the theater when there was no advertising for it and there was no marketing i mean they really care and they will buy the dvds or the blu-rays or buy the merchandise like they don't torrent my stuff or pirate right. it and there's very few people who have that so i'm, I'm very lucky um the Holliston fans especially one of the things that we always did as a cast while the show was airing was we would do these live chats with the fans on the nights that new episodes would air. And watching how many people from all over made friends doing that. I mean, that's the great thing about this genre, and I think it bleeds over to the metal community as well, is that like you could go to a concert or horror convention not knowing anybody. And with the most minimal effort, you could leave there with like five new friends. Yeah. Um, people are way nicer than the outsiders think we are. A lot of people think that whether it's punk or metal or horror, that there's something wrong with you because they don't get it. Um, but, but there isn't. I think we're more well-adjusted and nicer people than, than most people are. Yeah, and, and people are, are also surprised how easy it is to connect or meet or just do something. Is all, all you have to do is get up off the couch and you can like make a movie or you can make a hundred friends or whatnot. And I think that people get afraid of uh, getting up off the couch, really, I guess. And uh, it's, a, it's a fear of, of failure and you're going to fail. It's like, you know, riding a bike. Nobody gets on it and goes right to the Olympics. You know, it's like you're going to fall a couple of times. You have to get the swing of it, but you got to try and you got to be willing to learn and be able like, to have no ego and look at your stuff and be like, okay, well, this is where I can improve and this is what I'm going to do right the next time. So it's whether it's short films that you're making on your iPhone and putting on YouTube. I mean, that's an amazing resource now. You, anybody can do that. Yeah. So that doesn't mean that you're overnight going to be a filmmaker necessarily, but you can certainly try. Yeah. Um, and if you give it your all, I mean, if I can do it, anybody can do it yeah i feel that way about interviewing people but apparently that's you know i don't know you have anyway enough about that um <laughs> one thing i really like about your social media following in the movie crypt is how just open and transparent you are um how important is it for you to be that open and transparent and just like no bs to your uh, fans and listeners um you know, I, I think that that's, that's a really good question. Um, because I don't know how I feel about that. There, there's definitely times where um, I've regretted being so open. Um, for instance, like last year when 
when Dave Brocky died. Um, the last thing I wanted was to talk to anybody or hear from anybody. And because I'm usually so present, it, I think people just felt like it was okay to start Facebooking me their story about the time they went to see Guar or the time that, and, and there's nothing wrong with that at all. And in, in time, I could read those things and appreciate what people were trying to share with me. But at the moment, like my whole world was in it. And then I also went through a divorce, which I kept hidden for a good, like eight months just because I couldn't, I couldn't deal with it myself, let alone have to deal with the court of public opinion. So there's an aspect to all of this where it's like a careful what you wish for thing. I mean, like I just wanted to do what I do. I never really cared about being famous. I don't like that whole lifestyle. Um, even like when the TV show happened, then people knew what I looked like and then it was just different. Like you'd be out eating and then you realize there's somebody taking pictures of you eating or whatever. And it's, it's uncomfortable. It's weird. <laughs> um, but at the same time, I feel like because I've yet to have a movie that was like, you know, had 50 million in marketing behind it and billboards everywhere and national TV commercials that it was me kind of putting myself out there and saying, this is who I am and this is what I'm doing that people responded to because they can see that I'm a, I'm a real person and I'm very much one of them. So it's, it's definitely helped, but it, I wish it could, I wish I could say it was calculated. Yeah. There's been so many times where execs or other filmmakers that I admire have said to me, like, you know, it's really, it's amazing the way you handle social media and your fan base and, and, and you know, how did you construct that? And it just sort of happened. I mean, when I made Hatchet, yeah. We would post journals every day, not just me, everybody on the crew, Griffs, Electrics, whoever, would just say what well, we did that night. And we didn't even realize at the time, like hundreds of thousands of people were following along with the making of that movie. Um, and all we did is put it out there. Nowadays, I don't know if that would be the same thing, because I think a lot of people do that. But at the time, it was definitely something a little new. Yeah. Well, with uh, digging up the marrow, let's move into that. Um, you do. You are the main character. Like it is Adam Green in digging up the marrow. How much of that is the the real life Adam Green, and how much of that is like a character of who you are? Um, you know, it's it's a I, it's so weird, but like it's it's probably about a hundred percent real. Um, it's uh, it's such an honest movie it's but it's it's me it's the real me getting to live out like my biggest fantasy which would be right. to see real monsters i mean in real life everything that i say and do in the movie i would do um and some of that you know when i step back and watch it and realize that i'm like wow i could really get myself killed um but <laughs> that's just like i'm i'm just a big kid like uh my office everything is just surrounded with with toys and, and it's not just because i'm a i'm a dork but like i i, I just love this stuff and i don't want to grow up which is the only reason why i think i do this career because then I mean, you really got to be a masochist to do a, a, a career like this i mean people see the movies and the behind the scenes and how hard it is to make a movie and then when it comes out but that's all of that is like five percent of it but the rest of the time 
just things not working out and falling apart and people telling you no or lying to you or like leading you on for a year on some projects and then they never really had the money in the first place. Or it's, it's hard because it's like you want to do art, but you're beholden to somebody else either to finance it or to distribute it. I mean, we're not at a place yet. We're, we're close where, where the artists can go directly to the fans. Like there's, you know, things like YouTube or whatever. But if you want to do it on a real level, like, theaters or even Netflix, like you have to work with an established distributor to do that. Um, thankfully, we've always been able to find good ones. And I think it's because of the types of movies we make, we end up with people that really get them. Um, but it's like, it's, it's a hard career. It's, you know, what the podcasts are always saying to people, never give up. Like that's what it says in the back of the shirt. But I mean, in, in all honesty, I want to give up several times every day like i it's i don't know why anybody would want to do this you only do it when there's nothing else that you can do it's either like this or die like if you, i always when i speak at colleges and stuff and somebody says they want to be a director or they want to be a cinematographer i'm like well what would your backup be and if they have an answer i'm like that's what you should do but it's for the person who says I, there is no backup uh. then unfortunately, do this. Oh, I could listen to you for hours. Um, and, and are you sure you can't read the questions I've written? Cause you're answering questions I have written that I haven't even asked you. Um, it's, it's awesome. <laughs> um, uh, w well, I'm going to, I'm going to do a two for question and kind of touch on what you just asked. But, um, but I, Mar digging up the marrow is based on the art of Alex, uh, party. Pretty. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and I know you must see tons and tons and tons of horror work each and every day. What grabbed you about his work, you know, when you see so much of it? Um, what, what grabs you about his work versus, you know, well, I, I want to ask you, how do you keep yourself from being jaded, which you just kind of answered, but tie it into what about his work grabbed you and um, how that all, it, does that make any sense to you? Like, what about his work yeah, spoke yeah. to you? Yeah. I mean, a lot of it was the circumstances. I mean, I was already aware of his artwork. I just didn't know who he was, but I knew his art. I had seen it either at conventions or galleries or even just online. Like, other people had posted it. In fact, I think I might have even seen one of my fans with a tattoo of... Um, there's a painting he's done. Uh, it's called Goodnight Lava. And, um, and I, I know I'd seen it before. But I was doing an appearance at a Fangoria convention and this guy just came through the line with this pamphlet called Digging Up the Marrow and he didn't want an autograph or a picture or anything. He just wanted to hand it to me and say, thank you for the inspiration you've given me. And he walked away and I was like, all right, that was cool. And then that night when I started reading it, I realized when I saw the artwork, like, oh, holy shit, that was this guy? And <laughs> so I already knew who he was and I already was a fan of his work. There's something about his style that's so childlike yet yet scary beautiful like it's it's everything and it's so interesting and the way he deals with skin and the like bone structure and stuff like nothing is the way it should be and that's what i really like about it but when i read that pamphlet we were already trying to figure out a sort of documentary movie because I had gotten this package here at the office from a fan who was claiming Victor Crowley from the Hatchet movies was real 
and I told the story all along, and like it was just yeah. a really creative fan letter. And there was pictures of swamps with areas circled, like this is where he was really born, this is when the murders happened. And I was saying to the other guys I work with, what if we grabbed the camera when interviewed this guy and tried to get him to prove it? But ultimately, we didn't want to do anything tied into Hatchet. We didn't want to get started dealing with a potentially crazy fan. And then two weeks later, I meet Alex and he hands me that pamphlet. And the the theme behind the Ding of the Marrow exhibit that the pamphlet was for was that a former police detective named William Decker had supposedly contacted Alex and commissioned him to paint the creatures that he saw in the marrow. And it just clicked. And it was like, wait a minute, like, this is the movie. It's not some fan writing a letter about Victor Crowley. It's this guy trying to contact the cult filmmaker to tell his story. So once we knew we were going to use ourselves as subject matter, that's what really made this worth telling and special and different. Because if we had made up a fake filmmaker with a fake career and fake movies and fake fans and, like, that, who cares? But when you actually put real people in a fantasy situation, it just suspends your disbelief that much more. And honestly, we've been very surprised by how overwhelmingly positive the response has been because we, we thought it might be more polarizing only because that's what Hollywood has done to us. Like when I first wrote the script, the fact that my own reps were kind of like, well, what do you do with this? And it doesn't really fit in a box. And I don't know what you would call it. And so we thought, okay, maybe that's what the audience is going to say. I don't know how to define this. It's not sound footage. It's not mockumentary. But so I don't like it, but instead it's been the opposite. I think, you know, that's the good thing about these, these fans. They like new things and they're smart and, and they do understand something new. Uh, but I don't think enough people give, give horror fans credit. Yeah. Well, I, I will testify that uh, I didn't – one of the things I really enjoyed about the movie was I never knew what to expect at any given moment because there's nothing else really like this. And then every time I started to get bored, the movie would – change it would become something else and something else would happen and i, I i'm curious like did you craft that intentionally or did, is that just how it my viewing experience worked for that yeah i mean the, the structure of the movie yeah. is very typical to to any any other scripted movie i mean it's like the first 10 minutes you set up the character, you meet Decker, you hear what he's trying to do. You know, it, it's very standard. And even down to the fact that I think it's almost like 30 minutes on the dot when we see the first monster and act two begins. So it, the structure of it is, is just kind of flawless in terms of comparison to the, the average movie. But because it's told the way it's told, you're kind of, impervious to that. You don't even realize that you're watching a scripted movie. I mean, it's been great how many people think that it's improv. Well, it's not. I mean, everything in that is scripted. So it's great every time somebody says, like, was it, was it hard doing a movie that was all improvisation? And it's <laughs> like, that's, there's no better compliment as a writer or as an actor than when somebody thinks that you were making it up on the spot. So, yeah, it's a uh, it, it was definitely, it was very lean. And then even in editing, like, we cut out anything that didn't absolutely have to be there. I mean, there were so many great, like, character beats about Decker or, you know, interesting stories or even interviews in the beginning with 
all the various people that we interviewed at conventions and, and what fans had to say, but unless it was very important to get the, a point across or propel the story, we lost it. So I think in the DVD and Blu-ray, there's something like 25 or 30 minutes of deleted scenes. So, I mean, we cut a lot out so that it would move at the pace that it does move at. Nice. And um, you're taking this movie on tour like, you know, a band might promote a new album. You're out there. You're going to be meeting fans. It's a different experience for everybody because no one, no one really – I guess it's becoming more of a bigger deal. But um, how exciting for you is this experience of going out and taking the movie and meeting the people and showing it to these audiences across the America? Well, I mean, I've done this since Hatchet. It only yeah. what's different is that normally it was just me doing conventions and appearances or screenings, and it wasn't part of the release of the movie. It was just the promotion for the movie. But I learned early on, like when Hatchet came, when Hatchet was made, it was like 2006 when it was ready, and we first started doing festivals with it. And back then, you either got the Lionsgate Dream Deal, which was 2,000 screens and 20 million in marketing or you went straight to video. Like, that was it. And so when we didn't get the Lionsgate deal because we weren't torture porn, um, we were crushed, but I refused to, to go down. So Anchor Bay was willing to put it in theaters, and I just went and started pounding the pavement. And it was like running for office almost. Any convention that would have me, any festival, wherever it was. And I went like, I mean, God, the debt that I rang up. I feel like I just only got out of that debt like two years ago. Like every credit card was maxed out. And that wasn't on making the movie. That wasn't promoting it. Because it was all on me. And so since then I've always done that for everything. I mean for Hollison, we do conventions where I write an original episode of the show that the cast would perform live on stage at the convention. And there'd be little guest stars where we would pull fans up and let them act with us and read on stage with us. One convention, we let people audition to be on the show. Not for real, but they got to pick which character they wanted to read against and then have an audition in front of everybody. I mean, nobody else does that. I mean, there is no other horror sitcoms. Nobody else can. But we try to... you got to go above and beyond. It's not enough to just have a good movie anymore. Like, you really got to... you have to show up. So, um, with this, the fact that it so brilliantly lends itself to an actual like event and the fact that it's based on an art exhibit and we can bring the art exhibit and show people like the art that inspired it and, and actually let them meet one of the monsters and have a monster there because the monsters are so well done that you can look at it up close 360 and I mean it just looks great so um, that's really going to be cool for the fans and the fact that it's only $15 for a ticket to this. Like, it's more than that to see a 3D movie in L.A. It's like 18 or $20. Right. So you get all of that for a normal price. And then, you know, there's the merchandise and the other stuff, which hopefully people buy the art prints and the other things because that's how we're going to pay for <laughs> traveling this thing and, and doing the dates that we're doing. But that's the best way, I feel, to, to get the word out and... This was also tricky because if you noticed until like last week when the trailer hit, like I was very quiet about it. I would talk about it on the podcast, but we purposely said no to all the festivals that asked us to play the movie. And we didn't do a lot of advanced screenings. 
or if we did, the audience was yeah. like swore to secrecy, and and people went with it. But I think the movie's going to play better because you don't know what to expect. And so far, the early reviews that have been posted, everybody has honored that, and they don't want to ruin the experience they had for somebody else. So they they just say. I think thankfully so far it's all been positive, but they say how much they liked it, but they don't ruin it. They don't say exactly what happens in it or what it is. And I think that's the best way to see this movie. Nice. Um, I, I meant to ask this earlier. What was the collaboration process? Like, how did it feel collaborating with Alex on this, this stuff? Or did you just uh, take his already existing work and draft it into this, this film? It was like... It was like two little kids who realized that they're at the, the park and they both have the same Star Wars figures. Yeah. So they just they just have like the alternate battle in the sandbox. Like it was just perfect and fun, and there was never a moment of. I mean, any there was like it was so comfortable, and if you didn't like an idea or or you did, you just said it. And no one ever took anything personally, and I mean we're he's like an extension of myself only he actually has the ability to, to draw and I don't um, so it, it just worked so seamlessly and I wrote the script and I don't even think he really had any notes um, and you know from his mind I used the character name William Decker and a couple of the, the monsters that Decker talks about in the movie were from directly from Alex's pamphlet but the, the real collaboration was you know because Alex not only is a producer on this, but he also was the creature designer and the art director. So Decker's house and all the stuff you see hung up, like Alex did all of that stuff, and then he also designed the monsters, which his monsters don't make sense. Like the very first monster you see, there's no way to do that on a human being because the neck is so small and the head is so big. It's just not practical. So, but we didn't want things to be CG because CG doesn't usually look right. Yeah, right. Um, it looks good as an enhancement. And, and we did use a lot of visual effects in the movie to remove wires or, or, or enhance things a little bit. But everything you see is really there right in front of you. So, um, Greg Aronowitz was the sculptor who then took Alice's drawings and sat there with clay and made these just beautiful sculptures of them. And all of this is detailed on the, the DVD and Blu-ray. There's like a 30-minute making of that's only about how the monsters were made. And then after Greg had sculpted them, they went to Robert Pentagraft, who's done the effects in all of my movies, and he and his team were the ones who made the, whether it was animatronics or puppets or like only, I think, one or two of them is there actually like a human being inside performing? Um, most of like the very first one you see, there's six different people operating that thing. That head is so big in real life that it's like 120 pounds. Now when you see the movie, like, there's, it's like a quick flash and you just believe that what you saw. But if you saw what it really looked like on set, it was this gigantic head. It, was, it had bladders that moved on the head and then the eyes and then the mouth and there's um, like a spit tube so that water would fly out, which I don't even think you can see in the movie. And then somebody else with their real hands that came up in front of its face. And, I mean, it was so orchestrated for one second, one second of screen time. And 
it's I just think that horror fans are going to appreciate that because they're going to recognize like that was a lot of work <laughs> for one second. Um, but did we have to spend all that money on the monsters and do it? Like maybe not. We could have kept them more in shadow, but I, I mean, I don't know. when I see a monster movie, I want to see monsters. And so we, we did deliver on that one. Um, we are about a few minutes over. So can we wrap up with last question? Oh, okay. Thanks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sorry about that. Like, yeah, it's my fault. I, I talked too long. Hello? Uh, can you hear me? Yep. You need shit. Hello? Yeah, there it goes. There it goes. Sorry, I'm hey, using it. Uh, use a shitty microphone. Um, any Denver plans? Do you know? I live in Denver. I'd love to fucking host this or help make this end up in Denver if you have any idea. Um, I still haven't heard the cities that the movie is expanding to. As far as the tour goes, the the dates we're doing, at least for right now, are the only dates we, we can do. It's just so expensive to bring the whole show anywhere. Yeah. Um, and, and also just for our own schedules to line up and, and that it kind of had to happen before the movie came out. But I know that the week of March 2nd, the movie expands and I have seen Denver consistently on that list of cities, but it still isn't definite because I think it's only expanding to 10 cities and that list, the last time I saw there were 15 on it. So Denver's still on it <laughs> from what I've seen, but by the next time I see it, it might not be. But um, I might be coming <clears throat> to a convention there in April. I know there's a place there that's trying to, to bring uh, both Lynch and I there. So okay. um, well, I, but I don't know if that, yeah. if it's going to work yet. Well, any help I can do to do that, because I live here and I host uh, live events, and I do my own podcast and whatnot, so I'd love to help. Um, but one last question while Thank I you. got you. Um, how important is it to keep believing in monsters? I think it's one of the most important things in the world. I think when you stop, when you accept what the adult world is telling you as the only way to think, then it's that's just sad. And there's, there's almost like no point anymore. But as long as you can still believe in the things that they say aren't real and you can believe in whether it's an alien like E.T. that's going to come down from another planet and be your friend or um, you know, fairies or magic or whatever it might be. Like you have to keep some of that. It's so important. And we've all met the people that, that have lost that and no, like, it's just sad. So I think one of the things I enjoy the most about what I do is every now and then you meet somebody who, because of one of these things, they'll tell you that it like, it put that spark back in their heart again for whatever reason, there was something about it. There was a line or a moment that reinvigorated that. And that's one of the the best things that you can hear. But I think that if you stop believing in monsters and and also don't believe that they're, they're necessarily scary just because something is different and doesn't look like you or act like you, it doesn't mean that it's necessarily evil or going to hurt you. Um, I mean, even in the movie, I don't think any of these monsters are necessarily vicious. They're not out looking to kill people necessarily. Maybe some of them, but, um, you know, he, Decker warns me up and down exactly what to do and what not to do. And 
I uh, I don't listen. So, um, but still, yeah, I think I think it's very important to always believe. Nice. Well, I, I got to tell you this this was a fantastic experience talking to you. Um, I I'm just it, that you helped me like in just talking to you. Like I, I'm fucking madly in love even more. So <laughs> I don't even know what to say. This was this was a great experience. Thank you so much for talking to me. Um, sorry we went over to the PR lady listening. Um, Kate. Yeah, Kate. Um, but yes. Awesome. Well, thank you very much, and I'm gonna I'm gonna go do the podcast. Nice, nice, and I I will listen on Monday. <laughs> All right. I'll talk to you later. Yeah. Thanks, Adam. Thanks, Kate. Hi, buddies. Adam, thank you for uh, hanging out and chatting with me over the phone. I know you had a lot of interviews to do. Uh, later on on the Movie Crit podcast, you, you mentioned how each and every interview was different than the other one, and each and every one was a joy. Buddy, it was such a joy to talk to you. I, I, well, I fangirled out there a little bit at the end, but it was an absolute honor and a pleasure. Um, hopefully, hopefully one day I'll be out in L.A., and maybe we can arrange something real to happen with me and Adam. I doubt it because I'm small fries, but we'll see. I really like interviewing movie directors. I've got a couple other uh, interviews that I did for newnoisemagazine.com. I'm waiting to go up online. Um, if if and when those finally do go up, we'll throw the uh, audio up here for the podcast. Hopefully this is something that we can keep happening. We have a bunch of stuff going on at Denver Comic Con uh, in the upcoming weeks. Uh, I'm going to Thailand here in a couple months in the first two weeks of July. Uh, a lot of stuff going on here, buddies, at Mostly Harmless. Hopefully we can uh, – in episode number 100 is coming up, and I've got a big, 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 big surprise guest for that one that I'm really excited about. It's one I've been chasing after for quite some time, and I think I finally talked them into doing it. Uh, so, all right, buddies, uh, please uh, check out Digging Up the Marrow now. Uh, you can buy it on aerioscope.com. You can find that link at mostlyharmlesspodcast.com because aerioscope is kind of hard to uh, – it's kind of hard to spell. I could spell it for you, but I'm not because I want you to come visit mostlyharmlesspodcast.com. Like us on Facebook. Subscribe on iTunes. Leave us a little review on Stitcher or something, you know? We're also on TuneIn and all those uh, huge podcasting uh, uh, regurgitators out there. Uh, Digging Up the Marrow, again, fantastic film. I can't recommend it highly enough. Thank you to Adam for talking to me. Thank you, Adam, for uh, the Movie Crit Podcast. It's huge, huge, huge influ- in- inspiration and influence. Um, influenciation. Yeah, that's that's not a word, Damien. Shut up. Too much Death Witch Coffee. Thank you, DeathWitchCoffee.com, for all my uh, coffee needs. And thank you, Ratio Beer Works here at 2920 in Denver for uh, bringing me down after all this Death Witch Coffee. Uh, we have some cool stuff coming up with the Ratio Beer Works dudes. Visit MostlyHarmlessPodcast.com as well for that. And uh, without any further ado, we are going to end this episode with a song. I, I'm not going to lie. I hate this song. Uh, it is the theme song for the Movie Crypt podcast, but it's always getting stuck in my head, and I can't get it out once I hear it. And since I'm always listening to the Movie Crypt podcast, it's always stuck in my head. Buddies, it's it's a conundrum of all different sorts and whatnot. So maybe I do like it. Maybe it's like uh, when I discovered that I actually do like coconut after years of thinking I hated it. I just kept eating it and... Thing you know, I'm like, God damn, I think I like coconut. What the fuck, guys? What the fuck? What the fuck? All right, now, without any further ado, this is Juggernaut by Baptized in Fire, uh, the theme song of the Movie Crypt podcast. Uh, thanks for tuning in, everybody. We will see you in the funny pages. Take care now. <laughs> Stuck between a rock and a hard place And 
you ain't getting out without messing your face. Stick around for a while, have a nice place. If you like it, you're in the right place. Now push it down to the limit, then push it back again. Give it all you can give it, the time you win it, my friend. Take every inch, don't give them, give an inch, you will take it in the sky, you win. The very back you break, you can't slow me down, I'm unstoppable. You can't cover me up, I'm unstoppable. You can't figure me out of everything, I'm not. But out of my way, I'm a juggernaut. Juggernaut!